being done, and everyone was waiting for inflation to rear its ugly head, and we hadn't seen it. And I think one of the points is just because the central banks were creating money through quantitative easing, it wasn't getting out into the system. Um, so that's actually suppressed it for the last decade. Now we've had a confluence of events with the pandemic that um, have created a lot of distortions, and uh, those distortions are creating real inflationary pressures. The question is, are they uh, cyclical or secular in nature? So let's take a look and see. Um, you know, so the reasons for inflation being on the rise, we have massive pent-up demand from the uh, pandemic, uh, as well as the money being put into people's pockets uh, that were unable to be spent for the last couple of years or last 12 months. Um, you had massive supply chain disruptions and rebuilds going back to the trade wars that were started. Um, you've also seen big spikes in commodities. You have shipping issues, labor shortages, and wage rate increases are all the reasons that people are concerned, and they're all valid. These are all things that we're experiencing right now. And I think over a year ago, Stan Druckenmiller uh, uh, sent an uh, email to somebody in the government and said, you know, inflation's uh, we're seeing big inflation. What are you guys seeing? And the guy said, we're seeing inflation everywhere but in our numbers, uh, meaning that the way it's reported, they're not showing real inflation, but the stuff we live with every day, we are seeing it. Um, we'll get to what the ARS view is. I want to give a, a more balanced approach to this, but I will say there is a big looming challenge for policymakers, whether you're the Biden administration, which needs low rates to uh, allow us to finance a lot of their um, political agenda for the administration. They need rates to stay low and they need inflation to re remain in check. The Fed has a different problem. They want to get some inflation, but they don't want inflation to run away. And they've been concerned that we've been in a, uh, a downtrend in inflation for some period of time. So how do they balance their goals of trying to get inflation, but not get it to be overheated? Or, um, and they've said they'll tolerate uh, inflation running above levels, uh, their target levels for an extended period of time to allow employment to get back to a normal level or the desired level. So they're in a real challenge of how do they balance all their uh, their two dual mandate against what's going on. And then you have these demographic and debt uh, issues that remain big structural issues. And now you have the pandemic and our response to the pandemic. Um, and then the additional political response to some of the other issues that have been built up in the system for a long time that are now creating big distortions in the labor markets. So those are the, a lot of the issues we're faced with. What does it mean for companies? Well, they have to figure out how to deal with the supply chain disruptions, the shortages and the like. They have to deal with the reality of higher commodity prices without knowing how long they're going to be around. They're also going through all this supply chain reorientation and also the need to get more resilience in supply chains to allow them to deal with uh, trade issues that um, they expect to continue, particularly between the U.S. and China. And then you're all, all the while, you need to invest in innovation and people to stay competitive. And you're trying to do that while managing price pressures against new competitors like the Amazons of the world that are finding new ways to uh, re provide services at lower costs. So there are a lot of conflicting issues here that are going to go towards the debate, is this going to be cyclical or secular? So I just want to run through some of the real the reality of it. Um, 
So when we had this dramatic drop last uh, spring around this time in GDP around the world, uh, and this is gross on the top and real GDP on the bottom, you had this big drop, but then you had a very sharp recovery. And I think one of the things that uh, the pandemic has shown is you're getting these exaggerated moves, both in the in the drop down and also in the rebound. Um, you're seeing it in also personal savings and personal savings is in the blue. The federal government transfer payments, their benefits to individuals is in the red. And this shows a distortion again of the transfer payments going in as well as the personal saving rates being abnormally uh, adjusted. So the question is, how do we deal with these distortions and what, what's real and what's not when it comes to inflation? And this is actually uh, through March. So uh, the uh, transfer payments, actually the transfer payments are through February. So not everything that's been put out by the new administration is even considered in here. You also have CapEx, which has been steadily on the rise, and particularly since the financial crisis. And we think this has big implications for uh, what, it, what the outlook for inflation is going to be. Um, but look at the sharp rebound just from the crisis last year and back up. So you are getting a lot of money being put into the system. And then you switch to commodities. And what I found interesting when I was doing the work in getting ready for this is we're only a little bit higher than we were back in 2008, 2009, when we had the commodity spike. And what you've seen is this consolidation in commodities uh, and then uh, move up. But inside the overall commodity index, you have real issues. And the ones that are most getting the most headline right now are lumber and steel and iron ore and, uh, and what that means. And this has played uh, a lot into the inflation sentiment because it flows in through to the housing industry and what you're seeing just from lumber price increases alone, a $24,000 increase in the average home cost, which is right around 330000 right now in the U.S. So 24 into 330 is a pretty significant increase just from lumber alone. And I think somebody was saying that uh, Barry Sternlich on CNBC last week was saying you could actually think about substituting iron for, for lumber in building right now and, and do better at it. I'm not sure that's a good long-term answer, given that they're both kind of spiking. And then you have the other dynamic, which is the job market. And uh, the red line is the unemployment level. The blue is the job openings. And we're at a jolts level or job openings that's over 8.1 million. And you're seeing the unemployment rate come down. And how we what we are left with is a skills mismatch for those open jobs, which people fear is going to push costs up. And I think that's accurate. But the question is, how do companies react to that? And how does that all play out? So let's take a look at the market's expectations for the 10 years out. So their average expectations, as they're looking at it today, are we're looking at a 10-year average of 2.5% inflation levels. Um, not exactly what would put great fear into people's hearts about inflation. If you look at the five-year forward, and what this is, is uh, basically your inflation expectations five years out from today, you're in the 2.4% range. Not exactly what's going to shake the markets up if that holds true, but quite frankly, people don't believe in that because we've had such exaggerated moves up in the near term. So, I want to talk about two factors that I think are going to 
weigh on the debate and are very fundamental to how we think about inflation going forward. And the first is the real gross output index, which basically says, what does the total economy look at over this five-year period and what are the contributions of and the growth rate of the different areas? So it's a measure of economic activity. And you can see the digital economy is growing at a much faster rate than the overall economy and its contributions are much higher. And just to put it in perspective, from 05 to 18, the digital economy grew uh, at about a 6.7% annual compounded rate where the total economy was growing at about a 1.7% rate. So the contributions from this shift to digital are, are dramatic. And if I could just share with you two other numbers that came out today that I saw, is if you look at the total share of the digital economy as a percent of the overall economy, in 2018, it was 9% of uh, GDP. In 2019, it jumped to 9.2%. And in 2020, it jumped up to 10.3%. So big shift, and that would be what you'd expect as we were able to work from home and make that transition. But importantly, as it relates to inflation, look at the inflation rate for the total economy and look at in real price index and look at the measure for the digital economy, and you can see the deflationary impact of that as we go forward. So we think the issue is going to be around innovation and productivity versus they spike up in the in the commodities and other areas that and wages. And we think the big issue is going to be the longer term impact for wages. But I wanted to share a different chart. And this goes back to when the Fed was created in 1913. It looks at inflation through the decades. And you can see it's been volatile. But from the late 70s, where we had this um, cost of living increases and in administered pricing driving up a lot of the um uh, inflation, you've started to see when Volcker came in and broke the inflation, a steady trend down. And what you've seen is an average from 1913 through 2020 is 3.1% inflation as the average annual inflation rate. And we're struggling to get back up to two. And the numbers will run hot. And I agree that we've shifted our view that inflation is going to be running hotter and the deflationary forces are being overwhelmed by the inflationary forces for the near term. We don't think it's going to be persistent, but we'll talk about that in one sec. So growing inflationary pressures, what does it mean for us? And what do you do with uh, rising inflationary pressures? What are the different possibilities? Well, consumers could react by not spending, which is not typical in the U.S. We are a spending economy. Consumers could find lower cost alternatives, which the Internet and e-commerce has made that price uh, realization much easier to find, so you can find lower-cost alternatives. Companies can pass on the cost. In some cases, they are doing that. Or companies can substitute capital for labor, which we think is going to be one of the bigger trends going forward, which creates additional problems, which is part of what the Fed's concerns are. So how do we think people should navigate the restart and what it means from an inflationary perspective? I think you have to watch the market and rate moves. We had this very exaggerated move up in interest rates at the start of the year, and now we've seen a little bit of leveling off. Um, but we think the big issue is focusing on the wage bill, not wage rates. For all the talk about raising uh, the minimum wage or raising wages, um, what really matters for a company is their wage bill, which is what they actually pay in compensation costs, not what the hourly wage is, rate is to their employees. 
because if you substitute capital uh, uh, for labor and you bring in robotics and and the like, then the company might not experience a higher wage bill, uh, even though their wage rates for the employees that are left are higher. And you're starting to see that in retail. You're starting to see that in other places. Wherever people can substitute uh, technology for labor, they're going to do that. So we, we are very focused on this area, and we think it's not getting enough discussion. We think you should still be focused on the secular drivers, and this digital transformation is going to continue. I mentioned the U.S. digital economy is 10.3%. For China, it's 7.8%, and their target is to get to 10% of GDP through the digital economy by 2025. So they would still be below where we are uh, in 2020 at that point. So there's a big push in this area, and we think that this is going to be the big debate um, can innovation and um, productivity offset the uh, the inflationary pressures that we're we're seeing? We will point out, and one of the things that I think is lost in this digital transformation is these large and growing new total addressable markets that are coming into being. And what does that mean? And we think we're still in the very early ages, early stages of this digital transformation. Um, and we think that the ability of companies to pass on pricing is going to be very different. For Apple to pass on $15 of increased cost to an iPhone uh, is going to be quite easy for them. For some of the uh, consumer staples companies to pass on big price increases is going to be much more difficult. And they'll resort to different techniques that they've used in the past, whether it's um, different packaging, like short packaging or the like, to deal with their input cost increases so you get less in the package, or whether it's trying to pass on the cost or creating new brands that will they'll try and justify the higher cost for. Commodity in price increases historically tend to be transitory. Wage bills do not are not uh, transitory. So uh, why do we think commodity prices tend to be transitory? Because Throughout history, the cure for high prices in commodities is high prices because the producers will start producing more, which will provide an oversupply that tend to bring down prices. The same thing applies for low prices. Consumers start to buy more. People then feel the need to be able to increase prices because there's demand there, and that offsets it. But commodity prices tend to work themselves through the system. Uh, Wage bills, if they're managed, tend to be more permanent. So you have to be careful about that. And we think that the government's going to be under a lot of pressure to deal with their agendas, which means education and immigration policies are going to be the key because we have a demographic issue and a skills mismatch, and we have to deal to address that both on a company level and on a country level. That's going to be the key. So our takeaway is um, equities still remain favored, but you still you want to avoid the highest and lowest valuation stocks. The highest because we think um, – uh, when you have – this is going to be an earnings environment, not a multiple expansion environment. Um, so you really want to focus on companies with growing earnings. We think a lot of the low valuation stocks earned their low valuation and will continue to. Um, you want to focus on companies with compet- embedded advantages like the uh, Amazons and the Apples of the world. And I'm not saying there aren't other companies with big embedded advantages, but when you can think about what they're doing to spend and what they're doing to invest in the future – uh, very few companies have the cash flow and the uh, uh, focus on innovation and uh, productivity improvements that they do. Microsoft would fall in that category as well. 
So this is an earnings market, not a multiple extension market, because rates are going to continue to move up. Higher rates do uh, go against multiples, so you really want to be selective. But when it comes to inflation, we think inflation is going to run hotter and longer than we originally anticipated on the reopening. We think the base effect commodity price increases and pent-up demand will dissipate um, and mitigate some of the secular concerns. But we really think what's going to be the key is uh, the wage bills. Uh, supply chain distortions will be corrected. Innovation and productivity remain the key. Um, we do think the digital transformation continues to be underappreciated, which is hard to say when you when you've gone through the year we've gone through. But we see it in the way people are valuing companies right now and the way they're reacting to to movements in the short term. Infrastructure spend has to continue to increase, but the administration does not want to be the ones um, uh, not being reelected because of an inflation problem. So they're going to have to temper how much spend goes into the system in our view. Uh, innovation in healthcare is going to have to continue to accelerate to keep that cost down. Um, security is another issue. What happened with the drones and cyber the last week? Uh, another threat to not only, not only to, uh, the economic activity, but also to the currency, uh, the ability of currencies to stay where they are. So we think there are real issues there that are going to create some distortions as well. So our view is that uh, we are going to run hot, but it is going to be transitory. And I know that's not going to be the most popular view here, but uh, uh, it will run hot for a while and that'll be make people unnerved and will create distortions. But I don't think it's going to create a permanence that uh, a lot of people are expecting any more than the amount of money that was thrown into the system through quantitative easing created was going to create the inflation that everyone was waiting for because everything has to actually get into the system in a way that uh, uh, is real, not just on paper. And I think that's one of the issues we're going to be faced with. So, Mark, we'll uh, open it up for the other side of the story. Okay, let's do that. Questions, comments? Uh, Stephen, great, great points as always. Um, you know, the one thing I would say about if, if you look at the argument, everybody agrees inflation's here, but transitory versus permanent. You might be right, but how do you define transitory? Because the production bottlenecks that we have right now, combined with the decrease in velocity that I think is going to pick up of money, you could see a transitory effect that lasts three to five years, at which point, is that really transitory or is that a permanent increase in prices? Because to your point, commodity prices, they're volatile, they go up and down. Energy can go up, down, gas. But when you see the average grocery bill go up by 10 to 20 percent, how often do you see a box of Lucky Charms go from three dollars back down to two and stay there? So that's where I think a lot of the actual to the point that I think Mark made in that earlier comment, what consumers are actually seeing in price increases from an inflation standpoint. I don't think a lot of those actually come back down. Uh, I would just have my, my view on that, Jonathan. I, I agree that in some, some it's not coming down, but the substitution choices are much greater today than they've ever been. You go on Amazon and, you know, the Kirkland brand is, you know, continues to pick up, right? But you can price check anything now and, and you can get access to the lowest price and that continues to pressure companies in their ability to pass it along. So, 
at some point they can't pass everything along. So that actually is what I think is not fully appreciated right now. Um, but you can't do that for everything. But there are a lot of things that you can find easy substitutions for. And one of the big ones is going to be um, technology for labor. And if that comes through, then you don't have to pass on all the costs through. Um, but there are products that people won't give up. I, I see uh, somebody just threw in uh, Kirkland doesn't have Lucky Charms or Heinz Ketchup. And I get there, you know, the Heinz Ketchup thing uh, was one of the big tragedies for me recently is uh, you go to a store and they're giving you the Heinz packets and I'm a Heinz person. So that is a, that's a no go for me, but we all have our quirks like that. But overall, I think you're going to really see a lot of, a lot of substitution for lower costs. And as Tom can tell you what the advertising industry has taught people to do with how you deal with packaging um, is a big part of how companies are going to manage through this uh, cost I- increase because it all can't be passed on to the consumer. You know, I was going to say, uh, uh, Stephen, I'm I'm sort of sympathetic to the transitory thing. I mean, it just seems to me all these technologies companies' jobs is to eliminate jobs, so it's hard to, for people to get paid when everybody's trying to eliminate jobs with technology. But then the other side of it is that bothers me, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this, is that, you know, the, the government's inability to do something about, you know, the situation with our middle class finally got pushed. You know, they never passed any legislation. You know, there's they've not really been able to do anything on the health care problem. They've made a mess on the Social Security payments, just whiffed for 20 years. So um, you've got a situation where this finally got forced down in the, into the Fed. And all of a sudden, it's the Fed's job to defend the bottom 40% of the consumer. And all of their rhetoric, uh, if you look at, um, you know, what they've been saying over the last year now, or, you know, particularly since this Fed's transition in the, uh, the, um, the, the new, uh, uh, administration came in, you know, they're, they're literally looking at it as part of their job. They're, they've expanded their own Fed mandate. And, you know, to me, that's, 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 that feels pretty dangerous to me. Um, I mean, I think the Fed's job is really to, you know, I can see employment. I can see, you know, at some level, defending the value of money and washing out for inflation. But when their goals are reaching into areas that they're going into now, I just wonder, you know, what, what's happened is they, by, by, by the, by the legislative bodies increasing the payments to the unemployed, they've actually created a way for the minimum wage to go up without ever legislating that, right? I mean, it's it's interesting to see how this is working, right? And all the private sector companies of their own volition, and I'm not sure how broad it is, but certainly big headlines with Amazon and Walmart and places, they've raised the minimum wage without having a legislative impact because of the legislation of, of providing money to people for not working. So they created this this competition that, that the private sector had to compete with. And then on the other hand, the Fed's gone out there and basically made it their job um, to basically look after uh, the lowest common denominator. And I'm not saying that isn't a good, valuable thing to do in the world, but no. the, the, the transitory no. argument on inflation starts to get lost on me when I look at some big picture things like that. I wonder if you have a comment on that. I, I do. Uh, let me start with the Fed's concern is, uh, is, is what it's always been. Their job is price stability and, and maximizing employment. And their view of
uh -oh. more permanent and that the middle class will be even further carved out. So I'm sorry, I'm having that. We, we lost you for a minute. Maybe start again. Yeah. Um, so the Fed's mandate is, is twofold. It's maximizing employment and price stability. And their concern in the current environment with the pandemic is economic scarring that's going to continue to carve out the middle class even further. And not that, not that we've, we've done a terrible job for decades in that area, as you point out, but they're worried about more permanent issues. And that fear is what is driving them to keep rates low and to try and create the environment that would allow for the middle class to be rebuilt. Their job is not to create, um, not to address all the problems of the world. And that's what the Congress has pushed on them. Congress has really dropped the ball here, and we keep reelecting people that aren't doing what they're supposed to do to help. Um, but then uh, Jonathan just threw into the into the the note, and this is something that I think is going to start to get more play again is uh, universal guaranteed income, and and as that gets pushed out, uh, it's going to I think force the government to rethink a lot of the other uh, benefits that exist, and there are countries that are looking at full swaps of. Uh, guaranteed income benefits in lieu of uh, social benefits and just do an offset, pay everyone in the country a certain amount every month. That's their that's their minimum table stake. And then you move forward. I think they're both hard things to do. I think the Fed's getting criticized for some things that they shouldn't be criticized for. If they were going to get criticism to me, it was to keep doing the quantitative easing as long as they did the first time and as high a level as they're doing it now. And I think their hand will be forced to move earlier, and that'll create a market scare, similar to what we had in 13. But I don't think that's going to be the end of it. I think I think we'll be still in an uptrend, and I think the earnings power of the uh, U.S. economy and companies there is really high. Um, so I think we're going to have to continue to focus on earnings and uh, innovation as the issue. Uh, and I think the Fed overall has done a good job, but they're being asked to do more than their mandate now. And I, I don't think they're trying to do more. I think they're being asked to do more. I think it puts a big problem for the for the uh, leaders right now in, in Washington, how they're going to deal with this, because I think reelections are going to be tough for a lot of these guys. Hey, Stephen, uh, just to your point on kind of the 2013 uh, sort of temper tantrum uh, or taper tantrum on that one, it it just occurred to me that psychology is definitely changing. And I think, you know, back then there was a firm mindset that, you know, inflation was just not existent. Now all of a sudden we have the prospect of inflation. And I think that consumers and investors are being conditioned uh, to some degree. And so I wonder, and it's, it's an honest question. I, I wonder if, if, if the Fed raises rates, that actually there may be less of a response to that in terms of, you know, markets cratering, things like that, because people are now expecting it. Yeah, it's, in, it's a, it's an interesting point. I, I think the, um, and you saw one of the Fed, uh, members, I, um, blank on which one was, saying that he thinks the first rate increase will be in 2022 instead of when the Fed said is 2023. 
I think before they raise rates, they're going to reduce the amount of uh, quantitative easing they're doing from the 120 a month down. And they announced that that was the way they're going to stagger the uh, the easing of their of their policy. So the first step would be uh, to reduce the uh, 120 billion a month uh, down, which most of that I don't believe is getting into the system now anyway. Um, and that'll be the first sign when they do that. Maybe after Jackson Hole, they'll start to give an indication of what they're going to do. But I think you're right, Bill. I think the market might react a little bit more favorably than they have to a rise in rates. Uh, but the way rates would rise, I think the first step would not be uh, the Fed raising rates. I think it would be cutting quantitative easing some. And I think they'll scale that down in measured steps so that the market's not caught off sides too much on that. Anyone, anyone else? The view? Yeah, uh, Stephen, two questions. Um, when you say transitory, how transitory in terms of time period? Jonathan, and, uh, something between three to five years. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? That's the first question. The second question, QE. Adam, you're robotic. That they try, as it's been pointed, oh, you can't hear me? I'm stopping your video. Can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. About QE, it was tried in 2013. Um, Let's leave it at the transitory. What's the question? How transitory is inflation in your mind, Stephen? Maybe, maybe Fidel, do you want to elaborate too on this transitory? Uh, uh, sure. Yeah. A great presentation, Stephen. I, I just put some notes in the chat. I didn't want to interrupt everybody's conversation. Um, packed with all the right issues. And I, and I think you hit many of them in, in such a little amount of time. Uh, I think what's going to determine this at the end is going to be um, concentration of market power. Who's going to be able to pass on the costs? So it's going to be pockets of the economy where you're going to see permanent uh, increases in, in prices. Pre-pandemic, pre-all of this discussion, the, the only pockets of the economy where you see those inflation is in healthcare, uh, higher education, energy and transportation, um, uh, and I'm um, blanking on the on the fourth one. Um, I, I see Diane here. Maybe he can help me. Um, those will still be the same because we haven't taxed or regulated that market power out of existence. It's still going to be with us, right? And it's going to be exacerbated possibly. As we transition away uh, into the digital economy, as, you, as you've outlined, do we have the infrastructure to help other people transition, especially people in rural areas? If we don't invest in broadband infrastructure, if we don't invest in education and technical training, because the jobs of the future will be more technical and and will be more uh, digital oriented, then we're not going to create the consumer base and the working class of the future that will be able to thrive. 70% of GDP is consumer spending. Are we going to sustain consumer spending at that level in the future if we don't invest in, in these things? So all of this is on the table for the federal government. That's why the Biden administration really has to figure this out. For small businesses, it's it's not just the minimum wage. It's the uh, cost of health. It's the FICA taxes. That's a huge burden on small businesses. 
Are we going to figure this out eventually? Are we going to keep shoving this under the rug? So these are all the big questions that translate ultimately into large deficits and a larger national debt, which the economics profession has told us for decades, those will cause hyperinflation. We've had, you know, Japan for 30 years with massive national debt to GDP ratio, and they're still struggling with deflation. So the Fed, the ECB, all the major, you know, professional economists have admitted we don't have a reliable theory of inflation. We don't actually know what's going on in Japan, and now we don't know what's going on in the ECB, what's going on in, in the U.S. in terms of large deficits, large national debts, not necessarily translating into inflation. Even with the recent spike in inflation expectations, it's not really hyperinflation, and, and it's some of it is is really fear and panic rather than rational, you know, analysis about what's going to cause inflation in the future. So all of these things are on the table to be to be discussed. Uh, and I, I come from an MMT perspective. Some of you are probably, you know, listening to Larry Summers saying MMT is going to bankrupt the country, and the U.S. Senate is passing a resolution to condemn MMT as dangerous, but they're really not providing any reliable counter factual analysis other than, you know, old gold standard fears about too much government spending automatically translating into inflation. What I saw in in your presentation, uh, Stephen, today is much more nuanced, focused on the real side of the economy and the pockets of the economy where the inflation pressure points actually materialize. And I think that's a a great point. I, I think to answer Adam's question, transitory will be different for different inflationary aspects of what's going on. The bottlenecks for supply chains will work themselves out. That that just takes time. And and we basically had two forces at once, first the trade wars and then the pandemic. That's a lot for a system that was in transition to adjust to. We'll work through those. It'll take quarters probably to get through the big issues. The this consumer spending, if you take out the government support, which th- that can't continue at the same level it's been in, that will actually reduce some of the inflationary pressures. After we get through the initial bout of spending, when you reopen an economy and everyone can do all the things they weren't allowed to do for the last year. So that's another element of the transitory nature of it. Um, I think you'll also see companies vying to get people as they're going back to work That'll put some price pressure up on wages, but that's not necessarily permanent either. That's just a, you know, the kind of competition when people are trying to re, re, uh, engage, uh, and their companies and make transitions inside companies right now that are going to be pretty enormous because companies have to do things a lot differently than they did pre pandemic. So you're going through these adjustment periods that oftentimes the early stages of the adjustment will have higher costs associated. And higher demand, and then they back off and, and go down again. So, you know, I, I think some of this is a lot like um, Y2K, where we had this big buildup and in spend into Y2K, and then after that, you didn't have the repeat spend. So that's what you really want to look at. But I think people really have to understand the wage bill concept and discuss that more because the wage rate one is the wrong one. If if Amazon it can add 10,000 jobs and pay $3 an hour more for those jobs. But in other areas, they're cutting X amount of costs out because they have automated all these different functions. And you have fewer people doing those other jobs. Are you really creating a, a bigger wage bill for them? Probably not. So I think you really have to look at companies. Look at what is going on on the factory plants and autos. 
they're not going to bring back the same number of people they have to work in the in the plants. So if they raise the wages for the people they do bring back, that's not going to necessarily create inflation for them. Um, so that's in it. Those are the, some of the issues. And I think where the um, guaranteed income programs come in is that we do have people that can't make a, a working wage on on some of the levels that they're they're being paid currently. So we got gonna have to figure that out. But that's gonna be hard for those companies to pass on all the costs. So if if the costs don't get passed on, you don't always see the inflation either. So it's a very complicated thing. I think we'll for overall, I think the inflation numbers will spike up for a quarter or two and then they'll start to come back down because the year over year, you have to remember all the numbers for the second quarter of last year are the most depressed and the moves off them that's the base effect that's going to go away um and then you'll be dealing with uh more more normal uh numbers for this environment so i think it'll be quarters uh to a year or two i think there will be some things that'll be permanent i can't think of off the top of my head which which areas they're going to be i think education uh feels like it's been permanent for a while but their healthcare can come down in certain areas too so i think it's going to be a a very challenging uh uneven approach to what comes down. I, just, I think it's great that you're, you're in this uh, group here, uh, Professor Gabu, because we're, we're coming to you, uh, hopefully, you know, protocols. Uh, we will be doing this event, and, and it just underscores, uh, you know, it's not just the federal government. So to take, you know, Governor DeWine, Lieutenant Governor, they've got uh, programs uh for, for, for hitting this. And part of it's re, the retooling of the workforce. Again, is that private public side, uh, edu, you know, education is critical on, the, on lots of levels. So it'd be, I'm just glad that you're, I love, I want to welcome you, uh, into this dialogue and, and it, and it will continue, um, when we're in Ohio. Other comments, questions? Stephen, I, I have a question. What, and uh, actually, I, I would like to hear what Fahel have, would have to say about this. What is your opinion about this idea that the, um, the extra unemployment benefits and the assistance to families is causing a disincentive for people to go back to work? What's your opinion on that? Do you think that that's really what is, you know, creating this, so to speak, this so-called labor shortage? Um, thank you for the question. Well, this is, again, going back to the problems that we've been shoving under the rug for decades of not allowing the minimum wage to rise, not allowing, uh, not engaging in, in health care reform and, and shifting the burden on small businesses for, for health, for wages and so on. And now we have a $15 an hour, you know, alternative, which is, you know, the unemployment benefits. That makes perfect sense. Why would you go to work if you can make $15 an hour staying home, at least for the next few months until these benefits expire, uh, until the, the pandemic, especially for people who are in high contact industries, are more risk of uh, uh, injuries or infections and so on. So I think this is a temporary issue, but it's shining a bright light on the issues that must be addressed, uh, which is the, the cost for small businesses, which is the, the burden on, on families. Uh, working class people. Um, as I said earlier, 70% of consumer, of GDP is consumer spending. And if we lose the middle class, if we lose the working class because they have no wages, their only option is consumer debt, which is not sustainable. 
right? Credit card debt, mortgage debt, all of that, which is only accessible temporarily for a wave of five to 10 years. And then you go into healthcare induced bankruptcies, which is a huge problem in, in the U.S. So all of these things need to be addressed and they can't be addressed at the local municipal or even state level. They have to be addressed at the federal level. How do you make this transition into decent wages and benefits successful? I think you have to address the, the health care cost uh, question, and it can't be a burden on businesses or on consumers themselves. It has to be universal. Um, so I, I, I digress a little bit to the UBI question. I think for a country like the U.S., we can afford universal basic services as a national priority, followed by universal basic jobs, because most people want to work at decent wages and benefits. And then the bottom layer is a generous income support for people who can't work or shouldn't work for health reasons and so on. All of this is affordable. We know how to do this. It's just the, the political deadlock in, in D.C., which might be opening a little bit, but has been, you know, a huge problem for us for at least three decades. Woo, woo, woo. Wokeness alert. Wokeness alert. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> Fahid, Fahel, watch it. Be careful. Yeah, go ahead. No, very, very quickly, I mean, here's, here's a list, right, of everything we've touched upon, and, and this goes not only for today's session, but... For, for sessions that we talked about. And look, look at the laundry list, right? We're in the middle of a Federal Reserve experiment, right? The, the reaction function has changed. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows how that's going to turn out. We haven't had a reaction function like this in over 30 or 40 years. At the same time, the federal government is undertaking spending, which is, you know, New Deal, Great Society type, trying to solve the inequality question, trying to solve the climate question, all within an ongoing trade war in the middle of a pandemic. What can possibly go wrong in terms of outcomes, right? I mean, without, without judging whether any of these things are right or wrong, that's the, that's the, that's the, uh, the, the path we're pursuing. And, and the outcomes can be multifacetic. Who, who knows, right? What's going to happen? I mean, if, if China ever decides to tackle their debt problem, that's a hugely disinflationary or deflationary event. And that's going to have ramifications on the prices we're paying here. Um, you know, we're, we're, I haven't mentioned the semiconductor, but but uh, but Stephen had a whole uh, whole presentation session on that, right? Are we are we going to onshore semiconductor um, manufacturing because uh, of national security issues? That that has a cost. That's inflationary, especially at a time when you're trying to solve inequality, and and we're talking about raising wages. So I mean. It's, 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 this is all very, very probabilistic. In terms of hyperinflation, um, you know, I, I dealt with hyperinflation. I continue to do so in, in my line of work of, of investing in emerging markets. I don't think that you don't have the conditions. Hyperinflation has to come with a permanent loss of confidence in, 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 in everything that, that's national, right? Um, so to the point where you get to no level of interest rates, you know, we, we, we're, we're fussing over, are we moving from zero to one and, and from one to two? Um, in hyperinflation, there's no level of interest rates that makes the currency stop depreciating. Um, we're not there. This this is a country that doesn't have that, those characteristics right now. So I'm not that worried about that. Um, I'm more worried about how do you execute this laundry list of, of things without something going wrong in the middle. Yeah, and I think that's a I think that's a great point, Greg. I think one of the challenges is uh, is that we we suddenly went to um, 
the pandemic, now we can solve every problem that we have all at once. And, you know, we just don't have the money for it. Um, so that's that's one issue that we're going to have to get make much harder decisions. And even back to Lauren's last question, I think the problem is, yes, it is a disincentive for some if you're being paid more to not work than to work. That's clearly a disincentive. But I think the part that's misguided, and I think this is part of what Greg's touching on, is you can't solve all the problems for everyone all at once and do that in a fiscally responsible way. So we have to get much more targeted about who we're helping. And that means we're going to have to tell some people you're just on the outside of getting the help that you need right now because we can't help everyone. That's a tough message, but that's actually, I think, the one that we have to keep focused on. And I think the other point Greg made is, you know, we've been at since 1913 at 3% inflation, 3.1% inflation. We're trying to get back up to two right now. And people are worried that what this might mean. I think it's a, I think there's the discussion's a little overblown. Um, it's worth having because it does impact equity valuations and bond valuations and the like. But, um, I think we have to keep it in context that, uh, inflation is much easier for the Fed to manage than deflation is. Deflations, uh, are very difficult to get out of. And that's why we're throwing so much money at the problem now and why the Fed is, more cautious on letting inflation run hot than they are uh, worried about. Uh, they're, they're less concerned about letting inflation run hot than they are about fighting a deflationary spiral. So Volcker showed them the, the playbook for inflation in the U.S. Uh, so I don't I think that's really what's in the back of people's minds, too, at the Fed is they can manage an inflation. Deflation costs a lot of money to get out of. Can I say something about yep. fiscally responsible versus irresponsible? I, I think, uh, you know, some problems require, you know, multi-pronged approach on a massive scale simultaneously. And I would argue that it, it is affordable. Uh, if you think of, you know, the hidden costs, the cost of doing nothing, uh, you realize that the cost of doing nothing is much, much more expensive than the cost of doing the right thing which is investing in infrastructure, broadband, uh, education, technical training, all of, including climate change, by the way. There's going to be trillions of dollars worth of stranded assets if we don't actually do the right investments today in, 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 uh, in terms of fighting climate change. So the, the big challenge here, I think, is, is the theory of inflation that we have and the affordability and this approach to fiscal responsibility, which is, Absolutely important for you and I need to be fiscally responsible for businesses, for, you know, households. You can't spend beyond, you can't live beyond your means. For municipalities, you have to tax to, in order to spend. For the state of Ohio, you have to tax in order to spend. And if you have a little bit of a debt, you know, for a, a certain amount of time, you have to figure out a way to pay it eventually. And you only pay it by raising more tax revenues. The federal government is not a household. If the federal government was going to follow fiscally responsible, you know, approach to uh, to budgeting, we'd be speaking German today. We wouldn't have won World War II. Uh, that was the most fiscally irresponsible thing to do, which, you know, how did we pay for World War II without bankrupting the country? World War II came right after the Great Depression, the most miserable time. There was no money to be taxed. There was no money to be borrowed. So it was all money creation. The concern at the time was not about finding the money. It was about the consequences of that massive spending. Once you pay workers decent wages to produce for the war effort, how do we make sure it doesn't hyperinflate the economy? 
And that's when the borrowing and the taxing came in. It came in after or during and after the war, not before the war. And it was to convince all the workers of that generation to abstain from consumption because we didn't have consumer goods for them. That's the production bottlenecks. And we postponed their consumption by selling them war bonds and freedom bonds to postpone their consumption until after the war. We know how to do this. The federal government does this all the time. We know how to pay for massive wars. We know how to pay for massive infrastructure. Uh, we need to do this on a massive scale and manage the risk of inflation, which comes from two sources. One is production bottlenecks, which we can strategically identify and invest in a way that allows us to increase productive capacity in key areas and get through those bottlenecks. And two, the other source of inflation is abusive price-setting behavior or market power in key areas of the economy. And that source of inflation can't be eliminated by spending less. It can only be eliminated by applying antitrust laws and taxing and regulating market power to make those industries and sectors of the economy more competitive, more democratic. Professor, and that's where the role of Congress becomes important. We just want to keep, we, we like to keep it going around just to see if I mean, you've got clearly, uh, we should do a class with you. Uh, actually, you should, I need to put, uh, Fidel, uh, with, uh, Simon Vine. Simon Vine will start back in the 13th century and then work it forward. <laughs> you guys should, uh, compare notes. You can tell I'm not passionate about this stuff at all. No, no. We're, we're, I'm, I'm serious. We're going to make that happen. Uh, who, who else? Other thoughts? I mean, I throw on the screen something we're doing on Thursday that uh, can be cooperating and, and filling gaps. I mean, uh, if you guys can come to this, this is, you'll, you'll see more about that. But, uh, I don't want to close off the debate if there's, there's another enlightening comment here. Mark, I just have one concept that I want to leave people with about inflation and, and technology. Um, our view is that productivity is the antidote to inflation, and people shouldn't lose sight of that. And the, the more we can spend productively, and the, I guess where I would differ a little bit um, from the uh, MMT crowd is uh, if it's productive spend, I'm all in favor of it. Our government has not had a history of always productively spending and the earmarks and all that that get into these things create a lot of waste that makes the problem a little bit more difficult to solve. Um, but where we have productivity uh, improvements, that's going to come from spend on education, spend on infrastructure and spend on technology inside uh, companies and government. And if we can do that, the inflation issues will uh, be mitigated to a large degree in our view. Leave you with that one. Who else? Well, Mark, just we got five minutes ahead of uh, Aris doing another one of these kind of what matters now calls. I was just going to drop into the chat uh, the kind of registration link if anybody wants to participate. Stephen and uh, his his team over at Aris are doing a, a call primarily focused on you know kind of uh, finding alternative income sources to the increasingly risky bond market and uh, you know, one of their portfolio managers, Ross Taylor. So let me just drop that in if anybody's interested in participating. Feel free. Yeah. And, and uh, 
thought I saw Jack Wine on there. Just making sure we're we're going to see him on Thursday in the city. Any uh, anyone else? Yeah, Mark. I guess I would I would uh, chime in with what Stephen and Fidel are both kind of alluding to, and it it feels to me that there's a you know a, a a common assumption that government spending, especially in infrastructure and all the things that could be done in the private sector, is somehow taboo. On principle, the government granted is wasteful. It's inefficient. There's a lot of issues we can all agree with. But at what point does the extractive economy of of, of private equity and private enterprise to bring our quality of life up to the standard that we need to be competitive as a company, at what point does that become counterintuitive to actually getting it done anytime soon? Because what we've seen in the last 40 years is a gradual decline of the, the quality of life and the purchasing power of the common American and an increase in the gap between the rich and poor. So that's that's kind of just my, my feeling on it. I don't know if that uh, is controversial or anything, but that's where I'm at. Well, to, partly to that point, I'm, I, I almost... You know, we used to say that the revolution will be televised. Well, this, we recognize this infrastructure gap, and we finally started investing, as the Europeans do much more than we do, in social services, in education, in maternal health. Mm-hmm. And so the next time we have either CD19 coming back or some new pandemic, the population as a whole will be healthier. Uh, people will be. Yeah, but, uh, and you can check her out. We basically have. Uh, an infrastructure debt, uh, and that, you know, she's trying to, we don't have, have a, the long-term, the ability to think longer than a quarter sometimes. And, uh, just also an interesting perspective coming from someone who believes that we actually probably can overcome JSP scenarios. Uh, I could just watch all of our events, you know, you know over lots of popcorn. Really good debates here. Well, Mark, the revolution probably won't be televised, but it definitely looks like it's getting streamed and shared on YouTube, though. <laughs> well, it's streamed. The, the revolution will be streamed. <laughs> Good for bad. So it's 11. I know you've got to hop over to your, your other um, uh, Zoom, so to speak. And maybe Joe might even connect us here uh, uh, at, at 12, but. We will be having, you'll see some more uh, comments on the, our philanthropy event uh, that's coming up. Uh, we're just getting ourselves together to, to help each other on the where we have fill gaps. And um, and uh, and you can hear us about Asia for next week as well. So thank you, everybody. Continue, uh, debate will continue. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Fidel. Thanks, everyone.